I don't question my decision. I mean, I feel like it's hard to not regret ever choosing not to parent your child. Like, that's a, a regret that I feel like I, although I've definitely let go of it more, like, it's still present. For Rewire Radio, I'm Jen Stanley, and this is Choiceless. All season long, we've talked about the power of owning one's narrative and the danger of having it co-opted. On this show, we talk about deeply personal issues, yet somehow they're all major political talking points. They're up for debate, used as leverage, demonstrated with politically convenient stories that carefully leave out details that don't fit the party's preferred narrative. On this show, we bring you personal stories that we think also speak to something larger that's happening legislatively or culturally. While I believe that these stories overwhelmingly highlight the need for accessible, safe, and legal abortion and other reproductive health care, I'm not looking for stories to prove that point. People feel all kinds of ways about their choices, and those feelings aren't always politically convenient. They can be complicated. But sometimes there's a public narrative, a single story that is so pervasive it erases the actual people living it. And so when I spoke to today's storyteller and I heard her talk about adoption narratives, I could really relate. I'm adopted, and no matter how well-intentioned, while I was growing up, other people told me how to feel about my adoption. They wrote that story for me before I was able to process it for myself. I was raised Catholic, and I went to an all-girls Catholic high school where the only sex ed was abstinence only, but really, it was hardly discussed at all. And I was often used as a pawn for anti-choice arguments, as an example of why women's bodies must be controlled. I often heard heroic, happy adoption stories growing up. Even my adoption story, I'm very happy to be adopted and to have the family I have. But as I've gotten older, I've noticed more and more how invisible the birth mother is in these heroic adoption stories. Or she's a hero for choosing life, but except for her womb, she's invisible. Today's storyteller, Angelique Saavedra, placed her daughter for adoption seven years ago. And she says other people's feelings about her decision often made it difficult for her to distinguish her own. I would receive a lot of, oh, wow, you're so selfless. Like, you're so amazing. You did something so great. Or like, oh, wow, I could never do that. Like, couldn't, how could anyone give away their baby? And facing those two judgments were some of the hardest things. And after she gave birth, she had no one to talk to. No one in her family knew how to talk to her about it, and she'd never met any other birth parents. And that's partly why she tells her story now, because the birth mother's experience is often left out of the adoption narrative. Angelique agreed to do this story with the understanding that we're centering her experience and being respectful of the privacy of Angelique's biological daughter and her adoptive parents. Here's Angelique's story. I'm Angelique Saavedra. I'm 27, and I am currently a student at Yale School of Nursing for, or to become a nurse midwife. I was 20 years old the first time I found out I was pregnant. She knew she wasn't ready to parent. She and her partner had just broken up for other reasons. In a week, she would leave for Morocco on a service trip, and she was trying to transfer to UC Berkeley from her local community college. I found out a week Uh, before I went to Morocco that I was pregnant. I was emotionally very confused because I was, I considered myself pro-choice at the time, but because I wasn't able to get an abortion immediately, 
I was conflicted, especially because I was at an orphanage and I was working with children who had no families and was able to watch a lot of families from other countries coming into the orphanage and, you know, in hopes to adopt the children. So I think that definitely influenced my own emotions around adoption and abortion at that time. I was still, I was still developing my own path or my own options. And so I think at the time I was just confused and still considering what was the best decision for me. My mother knew at the time when I, when I was in Morocco, she knew I was pregnant. My ex-boyfriend knew he was the father and things were just up in the air. My mom knew I still hadn't made a decision and my ex-boyfriend was really pushing for me to have an abortion. And I, I didn't want to have any final decision until I got back. My mother was very supportive. She would have supported me in whatever I chose, but I think she knew I wasn't ready to be a mother and wanted me to fulfill my dreams of finishing college. So she would hope that I wouldn't choose parenting, but she never told me that. I came back to the States, visited family in Texas, and I think that's when I was like, yeah, I can't have an abortion. Like I was, I think I was close to the cutoff by the time I got back to California. So I think that's when I started to look at adoption agencies online. And that's when I kind of really was like, okay, I'm not going to have an abortion. I'm going to choose adoption. The process was really easy. I just Googled adoption agencies and so many different agencies popped up. The advertisements were pregnant, we can help, or here are some options. So that was where I started. I clicked on one of the adoption agencies and started um, looking at the prospective adoptive parents' profiles. And then I requested information and they sent me a packet of hard copy prospective adoptive parent profiles. Um, so that was, it was as simple as that. I think I just had to send them confirmation of my pregnancy test results. I talked with a counselor on the phone, but they never gave me information about parenting or abortion. It was basically, these are our services, this is what we can do for you. And that was that. It was important for me to have prospective adoptive parents for my daughter who were open-minded, who were not super religious um, or religious at all. I was looking for educated, um, educated uh, adoptive parents. I was looking for adoptive parents who were artistic, who would be able to provide a stable family life. She chose a prospective adoptive family and they agreed on an open adoption in which Angelique could visit her daughter once a year and receive periodic updates from the adoptive parents. Angelique saw them frequently in the months leading up to the birth and during that time, Angelique met with their lawyer once to go over the agreement and what it would mean to relinquish her parental rights. Yeah, we got along really well during the time that I was pregnant. I believe I, I knew them 
starting when I was six months pregnant until I gave birth. I kind of, I felt like I went above and beyond to please the prospective adoptive parents. I invited them to my birth. I included them in the birth plan. They came with me to uh, childbirth classes. Um, they paid for my childbirth classes. They paid for my rent and my food. And and so, yeah, we had a very open relationship at the time. I talked to them about two times a week. I saw them about once a week, especially in my last trimester. I think at the beginning of my pregnancy, my thoughts on adoption were very abstract. I was like the perfect walking advertisement for adoption. I was like, oh, I'm doing a great thing. I'm so selfless. Or That's what people kept telling me. And so I started to internalize that. Towards the end, it started to feel a little bit more complicated because my ex-boyfriend and I started to, he was very supportive. I was going through some family stuff at home. And so I lived with him for a month and it was kind of hard not to imagine what life could be like if I kept my daughter. He, I think, bonded in his own way. He would talk to her and he would read to her and he would use the musician so he would sing to her. And so I think that became very real for him too. We got into a fight the first night that we met the adoptive parents and he said he didn't want to go through with it. But I always brought him back to reality. You know, he did not have stable income. I was a student. I always, you know, made those arguments and did my best to kind of bring him back to our reality of not being able to be, you know, good parents for her at that moment in our lives. And that was definitely real for me. <laughs> that was hard. And so as the pregnancy progressed, I, you know, I kept my word, you know, I definitely felt like I couldn't go back on that, um, especially because the adoptive parents had contributed to my rent and maternity clothes and food. But it was very hard, like it was no longer abstract. And a part of me was dreading that moment of her birth. And so I had this like, you know, this moment in the hospital where I was just like, I wish I could have said, please, I don't want the adoptive parents here, but I felt like I couldn't say that. I went into labor on February 12th, and yeah, I spent the entire night in labor, but I wasn't having any contractions, so they induced my labor with Pitocin that morning of February 13th, and by 10.43 in the morning, my daughter was born, it was a really intense experience because people were coming in and out of the room and I had chosen not to take any medication. So I was in a lot of physical pain and I was also kind of dreading what was about to happen. It was time for her and the birth father to sign away their parental rights. But her ex-boyfriend was having second thoughts and announced that he did not want to go through with the adoption anymore. It was hard for Angelique, who'd just given birth, to manage both her ex-boyfriend and the adoptive parents who were present through all of this. 
there was no extra postpartum rooms. And so I basically let the adoptive parents sleep in the room with me (laughs) and with my daughter, and they took care of her. But that was so hard. Oh my gosh, that was probably the hardest night of my life. Like I, my head was in so much pain. My heart was in just, it just, I was dark. Um, And I remember in the morning when I woke up, like I heard my daughter crying and I wanted to go pick her up, but I felt like I couldn't pick her up because the adoptive parents were right there. And I didn't feel comfortable doing that after what had happened the previous day when the birth father announced that he was challenging the adoption. And so I, you know, got to see her that entire day. I mean, I was signing my parental rights away that day. Um, But I also signed a paper that I, I believe it's like after 30 days, the parental rights are waived. Um, but there's actually a document that you can sign that lessens that amount of time because adoptive parents are, they don't like that uncertainty of 30 days, like, oh, the, the birth mother could change her mind during any of those 30 days. So it's like 72 hours or 48 hours or something like that where instead of waiting the 30 days, they just have to wait the 48 hours and then the parental rights are waived. So we got through that waiting period and the adoptive mother called me and said, oh, I'm just thinking about you. Like, thank you so much again. And I can't remember what we talked about, but I just started, I just burst into tears (laughs) because I couldn't stop thinking about my daughter the entire time. And it was such an interesting moment because I could feel the adoptive mother not really knowing how to respond, but she could feel my pain, or at least she heard my pain. Um, So I did, I mean, I talked with her that one time, and then I think the rest of the times I talked with them were just related to the court case that entire year. So after the birth father declared to everyone that he was not going to go through with the adoption. I remember there was lawyers, and I was kind of trying to stay out of it at the beginning. I kind of felt like I had made my decision, and that was that. If only it had been that simple. The judge requested my presence, and that's when I started to get a little bit more involved I wanted to be supportive to both the birth father and the adoptive parents, and that proved impossible. It was almost like I had to choose a side, and I technically already had because I had chosen adoption. But I understood the pain of the birth father, but at the same time, I knew that I could not be a mother at that time. Ultimately, she decided to side with the birth father legally but she didn't elaborate as to why. It hurt her relationship with the adoptive parents, and her own mother was supportive, but felt like the adoptive parents were in the right. The baby lived with her adoptive parents, but at this time, Angelique and her ex were able to see her every month, so that in the event that he won custody, the transition would be easier. 
The custody battle continued for a full year after Angelique gave birth. I had to numb myself a lot of the times in order to just make it through um, both the birth and the year after her birth. Has there been anyone in your life either at that time or immediately after somebody who did kind of say the right thing and support you in the right way? Honestly, my nurse midwife was really awesome about talking about my adoption. She literally wanted the best for me and the baby. And so she was very neutral. Like she didn't try to sway me in any direction. She just wanted what was best for me. And if I changed my mind, she was obviously that she wanted whatever I wanted. And so she was like the one person who I loved to go visit because she was just interested in my own well-being. She didn't really care for the adoptive parents. She was just like, if they want to come along, they can. And as long as it made me happy. And so she was just one of the sweetest people to talk to during my pregnancy. And even after when I visited her for my postpartum um, checkup, she gave me the biggest hug because I like broke down in her office. I was like, I didn't know. this was Like I had no one else to talk to at the time. I didn't know of any support systems for birth parents. And so I had numbed myself and then I went to her office and just like tears just fell from my eyes and she gave me the biggest hug. And she was just very respectful and compassionate. My mom was basically the only person who was trying to support me, but she was definitely more on the adoptive parents' side. And so I basically just ignored my own recovery and healing process and tried very carefully to tiptoe around everyone's emotions. It was very stressful. There were so many hurt egos. And... I all I could think about was not wanting to offend anyone and also my daughter like what was best for my daughter I couldn't I couldn't even think about myself those first that first year basically after I gave birth to her and then in January 2011 I made a deal with my lawyer and the adoptive parents lawyer that I would drop my case against the adoption if I got to visit with my daughter four times a year and have writing contact twice a year. And so that was what I agreed upon. And I dropped out of the case. And I think the actual legal case between the birth father and the adoptive parents wasn't settled until April or May of 2011. And he basically settled for the same contact terms that I had. And then that was the end of it. So during the court battle, I found out I was accepted into UC Berkeley. I was a student there throughout my first year was basically the entire year of the legal battle. So I was dealing with that, trying to get through my first year. I was studying anthropology at UC Berkeley. I became curious about other birth parents during my time at UC Berkeley. 
I did not know any other birth parents. And so I started for one of my classes. I did a, like a mini ethnographic study on the birth parent experience and adoption. And so I interviewed other birth parents and people who are adopted and adoptive parents in order to complete this project. And that's kind of when I started to get more interested in not just adoption, but other reproductive experiences. And that was kind of initially where it started after I graduated on, you know, I had a a full-time job, but on the side, I volunteered as an abortion doula. An abortion doula supports someone who is choosing to have an abortion, and that can vary depending on if the person is having an in-clinic abortion, um, then the setting would be you're in the clinic, you're in the room with the patient, and you're just kind of supporting them um, throughout the procedure, and then afterwards giving them resources and other emotional support. Um, If the person chooses to have a medical abortion where they take the pills, the abortion doula will be supporting them in the setting of the home and then also providing after-abortion resources and emotional support as well. So I, I moved from the Bay Area to Bloomington, Indiana to be with my partner, my former partner, um, who had got a faculty position at Indiana University. And it was an opportunity for me to become a birth doula There is a really awesome organization in Bloomington that basically trained birth doulas. And so I got to be a part of that organization. And also Backline was opening up their All Options Pregnancy Resource Center there. It was like weird timing. Backline is an All Options Pregnancy Resource Center. Unlike crisis pregnancy centers, which use deceptive tactics to talk women out of having abortions, Backline does not maintain an anti-choice mission. They offer counseling and resources regardless of whether or not the client chooses parenting, adoption, or abortion. Backline's approach is very respectful, very compassionate, and non-judgmental. So they don't come from any sort of, they don't have an agenda. They do not want to push any person to make a certain choice. They believe that the person knows what's best for them and that only that person can make that choice for themselves and their family. Whereas, you know, the crisis pregnancy center very much so tries to manipulate a person into either, to continuing the pregnancy and either parenting or choosing adoption. Um, And Backline is very understanding in that they will give abortion referrals, they will give a list of adoption agencies if that's what the person wants, or they'll give parenting resources as well. So they do not ever push an agenda on the person who's seeking support. I definitely felt like working with Backline was a way for me to heal in a way because I I never had that. Like, I wish I had had some sort of guidance, or not even guidance, but just support you know just completely non-judgmental like here are your options here are the resources you need if you want to choose parenting um this is this is what is available to you if you want to be a single mom um 
I never had that. And I think to be able to provide that was something that was healing for me. Angelique's birth daughter is seven years old now. So the final arrangement was, it's still actually kind of in progress. Like legally, I'm allowed to visit with my daughter four times a year and they send me email updates with photos twice a year. But I do not see her four times a year. First of all, just because it's too much, I think, for all of us to coordinate. But also, I kind of felt a lot of pushback. Um, the adoptive parents were saying that they don't believe visits are in her best interest. And just last year, actually, in April, I got a phone call from the adoptive mother, and she said that my daughter has no need to see me. And so things are changing, and I've tried to like step away a little bit, give more space to them, and also still be a present or a somewhat present part of her life by insisting I at least get one visit a year. Um, and I do get updates from from the adoptive parents about her, and and everything's still pleasant between us. Um, we tried to for her sake, I think, but there is definitely some some tension I can't really describe it but it yeah it sucks it, it's I I wish we could all get along better I wish we had the same goals in mind and I just don't know if that will happen because you know they're really argue, arguing for her to not have any visits they offered alternatives like Skype we can Skype or you can send her videos of yourself saying hi, just different stuff, but no in-person contact. And that was kind of, I would never have chosen adoption if, that, if I had known that that was going to happen. I, I did tell the adoptive mother that because she's the, one, the main liaison between us. Um, they refused to talk to the birth father, so I always, they always go through me. Um, and it's always the adoptive mother that I talk to, but she, I did tell her, I was like, I would never have chosen adoption if I, if I knew that. And I don't know if she heard me cause I was definitely crying when I told her that, but I feel like I've, I've said that and I, I don't want them to think that I, I don't think they're good parents. I think they're really great parents. And I think they're obviously her parents, and I, I love them for that. But uh, I think it's very reasonable to have visits once a year. And I think, honestly, I haven't seen any indication that it's not in her best interest. Um, the last time I saw her, she asked me and the biological father if we could hold her hand and like lift her up and like I don't know how to describe it, like hold her hands while she like jumps up and she was just laughing and she just didn't show any signs that it was like harming her, um, which is what the adoptive parents have claimed. And so 
I would hope that that would continue and that we would all be able to continue to have a conversation and I would not want to have any legal stuff happen at all. That was a horrible time in my life and I would not want to go back to court to, I think, change what is kind of, what is good right now. The visits are very precious to me. Um, it's it's really hard because every time I see her, she's changed. Um, yeah, the visits are one of the best days of the year. Like, I'm really nervous before. I'm really nervous before I see her because I wonder, like, what's going to happen? Like, is there going to be some weird awkwardness with your adoptive parents? Um, and I wonder, like, what she's learned and, like, what she's going to talk about. And, um, yeah, I just... <laughs> yeah, I... I think it's just something I try to be in the moment for. Um, during the visits, I just try to be in the moment and ask her questions and get to know her because it's like my only time that I have with her. Um, you get, I think we're supposed to get five hours, but it's usually like three hours because she runs out of energy quickly. And so it's like I tried to use those three hours and you know do my best to like ask her questions and she's very talkative and so sweet um and it's always hard when I have to say goodbye because <laughs> I remember the last time I said goodbye I just felt really sad that I wouldn't I didn't know when I was gonna see her next and I think that uncertainty is is still very wounding like I'm not sure when I'll ever see her again who knows what will happen? Like, I do legally have the right to visit her, but that could change. So I think that's kind of the why same I year the adoptive parents told Angelique so they much. wanted to end the in-person visits. Angelique found out she was pregnant again. She was 25 years old and still living in Bloomington, Indiana. It was hard for her to make a decision, especially because she'd already had an unplanned pregnancy that she carried to term. She chose adoption because she wasn't ready to parent, but she does not regret giving birth to her daughter. She loves her daughter, and so do her daughter's adoptive parents. But she didn't want to go through a second adoption while the terms of the first were still so tenuous. She says abortion felt like the best choice this time around, but it wasn't an easy choice. At the age of 25, after living through that initial traumatizing adoption experience and then still i mean adoption is like a process it's still it never ends you know it's i'm still living it as i speak right now um it's just constantly evolving and changing and there was just no way that i was going to go through another you know 40 plus weeks and then have to endure the pain of separating from my child again like that just did not that was just not going to happen <laughs> I scheduled an appointment to have an abortion 
I actually went to the clinic because they had to give this entire counseling procedure. Um, and I encountered protesters who were very adamant about um, having the pregnant people keep their ch- keep their children or choose adoption. And so having to go there, get that counseling, that was kind of a traumatic experience. Indiana requires that a patient seeking an abortion must have an in-person counseling session 18 hours before the procedure, thus requiring two clinic visits. While Angelique was at home waiting between appointments, she had a miscarriage. I just remember, like, when I I felt cramps, and I was like, I'm pretty sure, like, I feel like this is a miscarriage. I just felt so much relief. I was like, okay, I don't have to go get an abortion. Like, it happened naturally. Um, so yeah, there was, there's this sense of relief that, like, I didn't have to make a choice, that the choice was made for me, basically. After my miscarriage, the next year, I applied to midwifery schools. Um, I got accepted and, um, yeah, it was, I kind of, I feel like it aligned well with everything that I was doing. Um, and it was kind of like a, like the next step, like after everything I had been involved in, like I, I kind of felt like it was how I was going to move forward and what I, what I was really wanting to do with my life. Having done a lot of like processing of everything that happened and I realized like wow my nurse midwife was like really the only person truly neutral in the situation who truly just cared for my well-being I really wanted to be able to provide that kind of support for people for pregnant people you know no matter what their choice was and and I you know did more research on it like undergrad I did like this global health um, class or seminar where we where I researched like midwives around the world and how much they're needed and and so yeah that really kind of I think all of that combined really made me want to be a a midwife. Um, I started at Yale School of Nursing in September of 2016 um, and I'm just doing my first year of nursing school to become an RN before I start my specialty year and it was Starting graduate school was very intense. I am in an accelerated nursing program, and so it's basically condensed like nursing classes and clinical rotations in 11 months, <laughs> and so it was very stressful. I didn't have health insurance until um, I started school. Um, I found out I was pregnant in September of 2016, so literally about the same month that I started school. Um, and there was just no way that I was going to carry a pregnancy to term starting such an intense graduate program. And so I scheduled an abortion, and that was probably, I, I don't know if it was just because I was so focused on school and my relationship at the time was deteriorating, um, and I just I just knew, like, abortion was the only choice. I didn't really have any, like, intense feelings. I didn't have intense feelings like I did the previous two pregnancies. I was still sad that it had to come to this and that I still didn't have my stuff together, but I was like, okay, well, I'm getting my, I'm getting my life together now. So 
I made, I mean, my experience with this clinic in Connecticut was so much different than the experience in Indiana, where there's absolutely no protesters that I encountered um, at the clinic in Connecticut. I, I don't have any regrets for my experiences, except for, you know, mentioning that I can't ever erase completely the regret of not being able to parent my daughter. The ultimate choice has to be from the person, and they kind of know what is the best choice for them given their their circumstances. Everyone has different experiences. There are birth parents out there who have wonderful adoption experiences. I've talked to people as a talkland counselor, and one person's abortion story is terrifying and they feel traumatized by that, but another person's abortion experience was empowering. I think I'm a, I'm still, there's still a part of me that is afraid to offend the adoptive parents. Like, I, I definitely want them to know that I don't question my decision. I'm very glad that they are her parents, and I don't want to make them uncomfortable, um, but I do want to get to know my daughter. And I really, I really hope that my relationship with her can be close. Like, I hope that she feels comfortable coming to me with questions that, you know, ranging from, like, basic medical history stuff or, um, if, you know, she just wants to say hello, like, I, I hope that we have a very open relationship. I, I don't know what that looks like, but I, you know, I just want her to be happy and want her to know that I love her no matter what. This episode was produced by me, Jen Stanley, for Rewire Radio, with editorial oversight by Mark Fletty, our director of multimedia. Jody Jacobson is our editor-in-chief. Brady Swenson is our director of technology. Music for this episode is by Doug Helsell. That's it for season two. We'll be back in a few months. And in the meantime, please rate and review Choiceless on iTunes. Tell your friends about it. Share it with the people who disagree with you. The future of reproductive rights in America is uncertain. So we need to talk about these issues frankly. Listen to people's lived experiences. Trust people to know what's best for their bodies, for their families. I can't thank our storytellers enough. They've all been incredibly generous. For updates on Choiceless and other Rewire Radio projects, be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And check out our website at rewire.news/choiceless. Thanks for listening.